thanks so much for for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, if you don't mind, let's just jump in. Uh, it might be worthwhile just giving a, a quick background on yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me. Um, so you know, my name is Ala. Um, I obtained, actually, probably better first start off very early. Um, I'm a co-founder of the uh, of the Open Tensor Foundation, along with Jacob Steves. Uh, started off actually my career specifically in AI, um, obtained my PhD in 2017 from a master university and applied, um, artificial intelligence, which was actually a lot of fun because we got to kind of, um, I really got to learn the hard way and how to build a product from the very beginning. So basically we were building sensors that would, uh, detect human movement or human electricity, bioelectricity or body heat, and basically infer certain human actions from that, whether somebody's typing or if there's some lactic acid come out of the muscles as a result of that and stuff like that. So kind of, you know, really went from, um, you know, sketch design all the way up to PCBs, all the way up to actually building the firmware and the classical AI models that went on top of that. And so uh, really kind of got to learn how to build a real product from, from start to finish, really. Um, afterwards, I kind of decided to, you know, try my hand at something a little different. So I went to distributed computing route. I joined VMware in, um, 2017, right after graduation, uh, worked in Palo Alto for about two years, uh, then decided to join Instacart for a little bit, kind of do a little bit more on the software development side of things. And, uh, I met Jacob, interestingly enough, uh, through the founder of Cohere, um, Aiden Gomez, he kind of introduced us together, um, when we worked at a, uh, not-for-profit called 4AI. And uh, at the time I just presented uh, just, you know, honestly, just off the wall ideas I had about distributed compute. And then uh, Jacob kind of reached out to me and he was like, hey, nice idea, but I'm like five years ahead of you. So just come join me, let's work on this together. And so that's when OpenTensor was born really. Uh, we kind of, interestingly, we built through COVID. So we kind of just, you know, he was in Peru, I was in Toronto. We kind of just started building and building and building, went through several iterations until 2021 in January, we launched the first Kusanagi network at the time it was called. And um, we ran that um, up until the end of 2021, actually, actually mid 2021, and then we paused it and we ran it again in November, and it's been on since then. Awesome, uh, that's great context. Uh, so let's just kind of set the set the stage here. What is BitTensor? Uh, yeah, if you could just yeah. give us your your kind of your pitch. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people at this point. It is, yeah, it is. I think it's it's best to kind of describe it. I want to say from a very simplistic perspective, and then maybe we can dive into details later for um, kind of set more color to it. Uh, so at its core, really, it's Bitensor is a protocol for peer-to-peer -peer machine learning and inference. Uh, that's really it in one sentence. Um, we are leveraging the power markets to democratize access to AI and incentivize people to actually contribute their AI models. And we sort of take advantage of the open source movement and the ability of open source AI models to actually make AI available to the public. So in essence, we're um, incentivizing people to create cutting edge um, open source models and to also compete with those models at the same time. So we're sort of setting up a benchmark where really AI is judging AI at the end of the day, right? The, there is no sort of human intervention in checking which model's better and which model's worse. Um, so to kind of make it more specific, there's two main actors in the system. You have your miners and you have your validators. Now the miners will really contribute to the system by running AI models that will solve a specific task, let's say image generation, and the validators will basically contribute to the system by ensuring that all the miners are running legitimate AI models and they're not really cheating the system, so to speak. Now the network itself is divided into subnetworks. Uh, that's actually our most recent update and that's sort of when things sort of started skyrocketing. 
um, which are basically neighborhoods within the network. That's the best way to think of them. Um, these neighborhoods do specific tasks. Let's say you have one neighborhood or one subnetwork for text generation, one subnetwork or a neighborhood for image generation, for classification, and so on. And so the miners and the validators will participate in one or many of these neighborhoods. And they're basically incentivized to compete with their, with their peers um, for tau, which is the, the uh, token that's being issued by the system. And gotcha. um, yeah, just kind of last thing is that it's, it's pretty exciting because now we effectively have what is really a mega mall of machine learning tools and models. And there's subnets now for storage, subnets for compute, subnets for images, for zero knowledge proofs, et cetera. So now what we have is basically almost becoming, or what we want to become, a one-stop shop, really, for any AI tool usage or inference or training. Great. Yeah, appreciate that. And we'll dive into, I think, a lot of those specifics in a few minutes. As far as AI inference is concerned mm -hmm. specifically, what would you describe as like the value proposition of BitTensor? It's, you know, okay, great. We have this decentralized marketplace uh, for AI running on crypto rails. It's a lot of buzzwords, right? And I think, yeah. you know, people from maybe like the AI community might look at uh, a project built on, on crypto rails and be dismissive. Um, how would you describe the value proposition of, of what Bit, BitTensor is doing? Like whether it's from a performance, cost, censorship resistance standpoint. Um, yeah, could you dig yeah. into that? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of read this line in a paper when we first started working on BitTensor and uh, it kind of stuck with me since and sort of become like um, my personal thesis and sort of the project's overall ethos as well. Is that we, we value um, resilient generalists over narrow specialists, right? And and that's something that's really, um, it's becoming more and more what people really are looking for. If you look at ChatGPT, for example, it's a really good generalist, right? But when you ask into a specialization, asking very specific questions, it's ripe with misinformation. It's ripe with garbage. It'll send you some weird stuff and stuff that's just outright false, right? Now, if you look at BitTensor as, as a comparison, right? With ChatGPT, you kind of, you swipe your credit card, you, um, get access to the API, you ping the API, you get back a response, done. With BitTensor, what you're really doing is instead of speaking to one chat GPT, for example, you're speaking to hundreds, if not thousands of different models. And each one is could be um, uh, specialized in something different, right? So let's say, for example, you asked a question about cellular biology, right? Chat GPT might give you an answer that it may be pulled from some paper that it went through, right? But on BitTensor, you're likely to get a more nuanced answer because you, there could be a model on there that is actually trained on biological papers, right? It can give you much more detail that is more correct and more accurate than something that's just generally trained by one company. So what really doing is sort of generalizing, you're sort of getting a lot of generalizability as a result, and you're sort of um, not relying on one single entity, right? If tomorrow OpenAI came and told you, hey, um, we detected some weird uh, stuff with your credit card or with your account, we're gonna shut you down. And that's it, it's over. Your entire business model just crashed because you were based on OpenAI, right? Whereas the BitTensor, it doesn't really matter if one miner goes down. There's so many others to replace it. And there's other people coming in to compete and try to replace that miner in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that I always describe to people. It's like BitTensor is sort of a hydra, right? Like you can cut off one miner, but you you can't cut off all of them, right? And if if one miner uh, or model, you know, degrades relative to its peers, then another one will rise to the top. 
And I think the other thing that you touched on there was really from a performance standpoint, BitTensor has the ability to um, specialize in basically every domain because you, you're bringing um, a lot of different entities from all over the place and all over specialties um, to to the network. And is, is when you talk about that, is that like mixture of experts um, or or is that a little bit separate? It's a tad separate. So mixture of experts is actually a little bit older. It's an older iteration of BitTensor at this point. Um, I don't quote me on this. I'm not fully 100% sure. Um, I think our programmers and probably Jacob are much more in tune with this. But um, I don't believe we're using quite exactly mixture of experts anymore. Um, mm. Having said that, people with the subnetwork can certainly introduce that back in if they want to. And that's something we could delve into a little bit later. But it's more because um, the the setup that we have now with each subnetwork, it means that every single subnet owner can actually define their own incentive mechanism. And what that means is that because you can define your incentive mechanism, you can define even your own objective function. And so that means that any miner that joins the system, all they really need to do is just tune to that objective function and try to make it better, try to basically beat their peers by doing something better there. In that sense, if somebody does badly, for example, if it's just just an innocently bad model, doesn't really need to be a, a you know something as catastrophic as a terrible actor or something like that. It just, the system kind of just calls it out, right? Somebody new registers, they get the worst porn bond gets faced out and then one next one comes in. So it kind of ensure that there's always quality over quantity most of the time. Got it, got it. Um, the one other thing that I honed in on a little bit, I think I was listening to um, Mog Machine at, uh, it was a, uh, an Urb, at Urban Assembly. He was mm -hmm. talking about kind of the, the, unified experience of using BitTensor in that you can have uh, all these different resources under potentially one API. I'm wondering if you can dive in a little bit into how that might actually be possible. If I, um, because as I understand it, I might be using an API from a specific validator and that validator might be plugging into one or maybe all subnets. Um, mm -hmm. And from a developer standpoint, I could see that being potentially interesting because you don't have to go grab resources from all over the place. You can just tap into one, um, one API. Is it, uh, do, am I completely off there or? or no, you're good. You... You're actually on the right track. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually, you're tapping on two different subjects here, right? So first of all, the validators. Yes, the validators can actually plug into any subnet they want, as long as they can, they can run that model's, uh, sub, that subnet's code, right? So let's say I have one big machine, I've got, let's say 30 GPUs, I can dedicate those GPUs to each different subnet if I want to, right? And then this way I could just validate on different subnets, right? Using um, using my my same wallet. Now, the other aspect that you're talking about, which is the AP, the unified API, what we're really talking about here is standardization, right? And that is actually the next big step on BitTensor is we need to start standardizing now, right? Now that we have the supply, we have some demand, which is great, and we're sort of growing. Now it's time to standardize. And that means that really, like one of the big things that needs to be done is to release an API that every validator can use and every validator can adapt to it. So that means that this API can be um, really self-adapting to whatever you're validating it, right? So let's say, for example, um, I'm validating on text, image, and audio, right? All I need to do is just grab this API. It just, it's part of my validation um, mechanism. And it's the same API that everyone else is using. It's just that it adapts to my own validation. If I'm validating in image, uh, text, and audio, then it's the API that lets me access image, text, and audio, right? 
Um, having said that, it's actually more of a software development problem than it is a research and development or even an AI problem, because really you're just building a API to actually plug into different services. That's all it is. So it's more like, I think the the longer arching question is how do we standardize this across all validators? And um, that's one of the things we're looking at next year. Maybe on and, that uh, note, oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I was just gonna add one more thing. Um, one of the other things as well that uh, this, you know, API, whatever you want to call it, we'll need to do too, is to abstract away the complexities of crypto and AI from the actual API usage itself, right? If you look at ChatGPT, for example, if I'm just a regular user who doesn't have an AI background, it's a magic box. I just want a credit card and it gives me answers. That's all it is. And we that's actually one of the beautiful things that OpenAI actually did with this is that it's so easy to use. And that's what we need to start towards next is to abstract away the crypto side, abstract away the AI side, and really, it's the magical box that works for everybody. And that's how we sort of will start penetrating the more, um, I want to say, layman user base. Yeah, we, we like to think a lot about go-to-market, you know, in, in sort of the crypto space, which has been tricky um, uh, for everybody. Um, and, you know, particularly, I think, around that idea that you've just been discussing. When you think about, you know, I, th I think we're somewhat familiar with how, you know, initially when you're bootstrapping a network, you know, there's an inflation that needs to happen to be able to incentivize, you know, um, the different participants to come into the table, right? And and mm -hmm. BitTensors is doing this amazing job of, on the one side, attracting, of like sort of creating this gravitational pull, attracting on the one hand, the miners, or let's say the models uh, that can do all sorts of things. On the other side, you know, the potential demand of people that need you know, businesses, consumers, whatever that need uh, a problem resolved. If you think sort of into the future as to what, let's say, a sustainable BitTensor network looks like, you know, is that uh, mostly focused around this sort of unified uh, experience that Phil, you know, was sort of asking about with the, with the single API? Is that sort of the, the vision that you think uh, BitTensor is moving towards? Or is it much more of a, you know, marketplace fragmented, you know, uh, a lot of different things for a lot of different people type? I think the answer is somewhere in the middle, to be honest. Um, it, it Just because we use, for example, let's say something like a unified API, doesn't mean that it can't be a marketplace that's a lot of different things for a lot of different people, right? Um, we could look at the API example as just really a way to bring in these external developers to build on top of the sub-network, right? Um, those people are sort of ultimately what will drive a lot of the applications on top of the system and Really, if you really think about it, they're also the people who will bring the system to the mainstream in the first place. So enabling them to do that is definitely going to be um, like it's, it's going to be a challenge, of course. But that is actually one of the reasons why we're looking at abstracting away all of the AI and all of the crypto sides of things, right? And that's something that I always talk about. Is um, you know I've been to a few uh, quite a few crypto conferences since I started doing this, and as an AI person, uh, to be honest with you, if I'd come in without any crypto knowledge, a lot of them make no sense to me. Right, because they're very geared towards a crypto audience. And some of the technologies are amazing, but nobody's going to get it because they're not really gearing towards an audience who doesn't understand crypto in the first place. And so one of the things that we need to do is we need to bridge this gap, right? Bridging it with developers, maybe that's actually one of the big pushes that we're trying to do is how do we enable any developer to join the system and build on top of it as well? And that includes documentation, that includes um, API wrappings, that includes you know a whole slew of things that we want to release next year. And the other side of it is how do we ensure that the people who are already in the system and really the the democratized market aspect of it is not compromised as a result, right? We want to enable the, uh, let's say, for lack of a better example, the disgruntled open AI employee to come into the system and build their own subnetwork and actually build something really cool 
on top of the system that is an actual utility, right? And there's incentivized to do that still without sacrificing the integrity of that. So that's sort of the line we're trying to walk for the next year. Um, it's gonna be a very fine line, but I think we're, we're fairly capable of doing that. Maybe just to wrap this question up, but are there any any key partnerships, you know, that you think uh, the BitTensor network will have to, you know, strike uh, in order to push that, maybe that specific problem forward? Yeah, I think that uh, specifically, you know, and I say this all the time, I think if you've heard the other podcasts I participated in, I think specifically what we really need to do is we need to bring in the AI talent, right? Um, there's a lot of people in the system now that are doing a great job, but they might not be, you know, um, AI researchers or AI engineers. They're more software developers that taught themselves AI to work on top of the system or crypto developers who taught themselves AI. And, you know, that is absolutely awesome and absolutely commendable that people are actually teaching themselves this complicated topic to participate in it. But I feel like somebody with a lot of theoretical knowledge of AI will actually have a lot to contribute as well. And those are the people who want to yank in for, for yeah. the next year. And um, interestingly enough, they're very crypto averse. Which, fair enough, you know, people in the, you know, all of us in the crypto space have had a few eggs thrown in our face this week, this year. But um, <laughs> I think that if we, um, if we speak their language and if we actually come at them from the angle of, you know, this is not snake oil, this is actually developed by an AI company that has happened to use a blockchain to solve a problem, then that's where we're going to, that's really going to be the, the I want to say, the key to strike here, right? And that is usually done by either, um, you know, publications and respective conferences. So we've been publishing in, for lack of a better term, um, we've been either lead authors or co-authors of a paper on neural IPS for the last two years. That's been very good. A lot of really good exposure. We want to participate even more than that. Like next year, we want to participate in more conferences. We want to actually um, be a known platform in the AI community. That's sort of where the key is going to be at. And sort of incentivizing them that way is going to be that's really going to be the hard part because, uh, you know, they already have a bad misconception. You know, bring it in and be like, you know, we're the good guys here. So, um, yeah, I think that's one of the key partnerships that we want to do for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be huge. Um, it seems like BitTensor is sort of at an inflection point where things are working, you know, well enough and starting to see real innovation, especially with like the absolute boom in subnets only being live for two or three months. Um, let's let's dive in a little bit into how BitTensor really works, right? Like you you briefly described the two-layer system, which is basically validators and miners. Miners being the suppliers of a digital resource, whether that is compute, um, text-based, you know, inference, uh, image-based, multimodality, really the, the, you know, the universe is kind of endless. And then validators are, are basically just these entities that, um, make sure that the output coming from these miners is, is good and valid and they rank them so that you can, um, put these incentive schemes together. Can you maybe dive in and fill in, fill in any gaps that, that I might be missing there? Yeah, there, there's, um, there's quite a, cut up quite a lot to the story. Uh, interestingly enough, you can look at it as, um, sorry, I'm trying to think of a good analogy to this specifically. Uh, I'll tell you what, think of it like a graph, right? Um, there's two types of nodes in this graph, right? You have your validators and your miners. And effectively, what's going to happen is each validator is going to ping a subset of these, uh, miners at a given point in time. So let's say, um, for lack of a better term, let's say we're working on our text subnetwork, right? This is kind of the 
easiest example because it's the oldest one at this point, really. And so what each validator does, it's going to query a subset of miners periodically. And when a miner is queried, it's going to be expected to be performing useful work. And that means that I can query it and say, okay, give me back a prompt. Um, give me the, for example, uh, the, the, the um, sorry, uh, give me the, the synopsis of Lord of the Rings, let's say, um, in a French accent, right? And what it's going to do is the miner is going to respond back with that query. And the type of work is going to depend on that submit. So for example, if it's an image, it's going to say a different prompt. Let's say, you know, generate an image of say a speaker system in a concert or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, for each different subnetworks. And um, the miners really have to respond before a time limit with their proof of, with the proof of the work that they actually did. If they don't respond in that time limit, then they get penalized. If they do, then their response is actually um, analyzed through, at, at least it's in our design, um, through a layer of reward models. So what these reward models really do is they basically just check, you know, your diversity, your validity, your relevancy of the response of your miner directly to the um, the validator and what the validator is actually expecting in the first place. And so according to that, then you get basically ranked according to whoever's with you, like basically, sorry, ranked according to the peers who are with you. And that ranking is recorded on the blockchain eventually. So um, in doing so, really, we're taking out the AI from the blockchain completely. It's actually everyone's running their own AI. And the blockchain really just contains a ranking. So for lack of, there's a lot more complexity to it, but for lack of a better term, it only really only contains the ranking. And that ranking basically determines who gets rewarded how much as a result, whether it's validators or the miners. Now, um, as you, you know, kind of, um, as you repeat this process, eventually every single miner is going to get pinged. And every single miner will be ranked. And every single miner will basically get either reward or be penalized for it as a result. And so to caveat this further, this is only for our subnetwork, and that's actually going to change very soon because there is obviously a lot of um, issues with this sort of design. Like, for example, what's stopping somebody from fine-tuning to the reward model so they always get the right response? It's because you have open source, you have a lot of different problems you have to tackle, and that's, again, sort of undergoing an overhaul. And the beauty of it is that because BitTensor is actually able to ingest any technology, that means that the subnet owners have full control over how they do this process. You don't have to use reward models. You could use whatever you want to use. Whatever works for you, use that. And if you're able to do it properly, then you, you know, you've sort of really incentivized your miners with the reward, right? And that's really what it's all about. That's what really building a sum is all about. You want to incentivize your miners and validators with the reward that's coming out, right? And that incentive is actually a balance, right? You want to incentivize them from cheating and you want to incentivize them to do things properly. Yeah, on that point, the two of the really important things and this is accurate benchmarking and mm -hmm. properly aligned incentives, right? Yeah. And it sounds to me that those are both customizable within each subnet, right? The Or actually even within each validator's software, right? How exactly mm -hmm. you benchmark. Can you dig into, in, into exactly how benchmarking works? You know, you first started with AI inference, which I think is actually the most ambitious benchmarking to do because it's so subjective. But yeah, can you just dive into like first how how the benchmarking for kind of inference works and then maybe how uh, benchmarking has expanded from there into these other subnetworks? Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. It's actually rather technical. I think I could probably just dive into the, the I want to say the pencil tips of the whole thing and then yeah. we can probably deep dive into a but it's like a full on article later. Um, so actually, we initially started with was training at the very, very early editions of BitTensor. We were focused on training. We weren't focused on inference at all. 
right? And the problems with that is how do you verify something was trained properly, right? And at the time, we were using a lot of different, um, a lot of different uh, methodologies to actually measure um, whether a uh, miner did better or worse as a result of the contributions of its peers. So, for example, one of the things that we used to do is we used to measure basically um, what is the impact of removing a miner from the network on its peers? Are they going to do worse? Are they going to do better? And then as a result, we were them that way. It became rather complicated, and we found that there's actually a simpler approach to this. And that's sort of when we came up with um, sort of what is called the what we're calling the Fini fork, which happened earlier this year. And um, we sort of decided to focus on inference a little bit more first, and then also bring in pre-training as well. So pre-training is actually already being done on Summit 9. That's being done by Jacob. And um, I think they're, they've already reached GPT-2 performance, which is pretty crazy considering they started like a month ago. Um, and they're moving more towards GPT-3 and 4 probably eventually. Now, um, in the way that we benchmark perform, uh, inference, right? So for example, that really, because as yet is subjective, it's really up to the validator, right? So you need to basically pick out for example, in the example of the subnet one, uh, the subnet one architecture that I described, you have to pick out reward models that are as unsubjective as possible. Now, of course, that is not quite easy to do because every reward model that's out there, it's actually not that good because there's not that much data to train on. At the same time, that reward model that you create will always be biased towards what whoever created that reward model in the first place, right? Now, because of that, benchmarking and actually measuring the output of uh, specifically for text, for example, is an ever-evolving challenge. We're always working on this sort of thing. Now, the silver lining in this, which is actually a gigantic one, and we're pretty happy about it, is that because a lot of people are trying to cheat the system, we're getting a lot of data as a result, right? A lot of bad data, which is great because we love bad data, so we can actually train our own world model against this sort of thing if we wanted to, right? So as a result, one of the things that you can do to actually benchmark properly is to train on the data you're getting. Right? It's okay if you get a bad subnetwork for a little while, right? Use that data, train something that can actually tell bad from good according to what you're trying to um, according to what you're trying to validate. So let's say, for example, if you have an image subnetwork, train your, say, for example, reward model against that sort of thing, and then you'll be able to actually create a better model against uh, that's basically better guarded against this sort of attack or this sort of issue. And then you get a better merge mark as a result. Um, again, this is sort of just speaking. Um, from subnet one perspective, um, a lot of different subnetworks actually employ very, very different ways to validate and benchmark. So I can't speak for them specifically, but um, that is one of the ways you can actually tackle it as a result. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting that uh, there can be so many different approaches uh, to validation, to benchmarking. BitTensor really is wildly generalizable. Um, you know, it's not just AI inference anymore. Um, it, it, there are all these different specialties. I'm wondering if you can dive into how how these subnet subnetworks work and how emissions from you know BitTensor get allocated to any specific subnetwork, right? Because there's we can start to see this topology and yeah. um, like. I think it's interesting to analyze how value is actually flowing through the system. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since, you know, each subnet has so much uh, sovereignty in some ways around like how to benchmark and the rest of the things, right? I'm sure it must be a, a sort of titanic problem <laughs> for you guys to be- It is huge, uh, yeah. To keep in check. 
it, it is pretty massive. And that's sort of where the responsibility will eventually lie on the subnet owners. And if the subnet doesn't do well, then that subnet actually will risk getting deregistered as a result. Now, um, but yeah, the, the crazy part about, you know, about BitTensor generally is that it's changing often so much that I'm fairly certain by the time this podcast is published, whatever I said will be completely out of date, really, because <laughs> people are always adding new stuff. So um, to kind of delve into the incentivization, how subnetworks um, actually work initially, right? So right now there's 32 slots in the subnetworks, right? There is a slot zero, that is subnet zero. Now, subnet zero is actually static and you can't really deregister it, but it's actually what we call the root subnetwork. And it really contains validators. And the job of those validators is to set weights to the other subnetworks on the system. This weight setting will determine how much emission they get per, uh, basically per tau. So for example, if their emission is, for example, 10%, then they will get 720 tau per day, right? And basically the subnet owner will receive 18% of that 10%. And then the validators and the miners will each receive 42% of that 10%. So um, really uh, the way that we sort of keep this up is up to the validators eventually in the uh, root subnetwork itself. Gotcha. And um, sorry, just, just to add a little bit more. The uh, If let's say a subnetwork has existed for a long time and hasn't really done anything, all the really the root validators have to do is say, okay, you haven't done much. I don't like what you're doing. I'm just gonna take away weight from you. And eventually when that weight's taken off and the new subnetwork's trying to register in, then the lowest emission subnetwork will get deregistered as a result. So it's how we kind of ensure a very similar process to how we kick miners out and validators out according to their performance, similar to the subnetwork. If there is um, bad emissions or bad performance as a result, or people don't agree with how that subnetwork's operating, then eventually we'll just get deregistered. So we really, ultimately let the markets decide all the time. Gotcha. Is I was just going to ask that. Um, I think we're having, we were just discussing with Phil about like what the value, what is the most valuable subnet for BitTensor right now? What does the sort of a break, a, a optimized breakdown of subnets look like? Um, can you get, maybe give us a sense of what the market or what the, you know, what users are valuing right now for subnets? Yeah, yeah, I can tell you right now. Give me one second. I'm getting that list as we speak. Just one moment. It takes a little yeah, bit of time. I guess to build on that, it's <clears throat> almost like what what are the validators look on the root uh, subnet looking at to mm -hmm. determine which subnet is the most valuable and deserves the most emissions? It, to be honest with you, at this point, I think it's more of a social problem than anything. It's yeah. really what's up network seeing the most attention from everybody. And that's the one that gets a lot of emission. So to give you an example, uh, right now, subnet one is, that's our subnetwork is getting 14% emissions. Um, subnet 18 is actually getting the most emissions, which is more than the foundation, which is honestly really awesome to hear that somebody's competing that hard. I believe subnet 18 is uh, the Cortex folks. I think they're doing um, uh, something akin to translation. And then the time series is the other one as well. Um, they're subnet eight, they're doing time series predictions. So it's it's really interesting because it shows really what the community really cares about at this point. And that's what they think is interesting. Um, if I think, let's say, for example, I care more about um, image generation, then I'm just gonna set all my ways to image generation because that's really much cooler and et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly enough, a lot of the um, sort of, as we age and as people understand how these subnets are working, a lot of subnet orders are actually starting to experience people trying to cheat the system. Right. So initially people were working honestly because they're trying to understand how things work. But now that they're sort of they get it, they try to shortcut their way through. Right. How do I get a, you know, how do I get the same reward for less for less work, basically? And um, 
that's where it really is going to be really interesting. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and so within within each sub network, and I guess is not necessarily at the sub network level, but um, when validators are pinging miners, is there any sort of uh, are miners looking at a minimum amount of tau that validators have delegated to them? Like um, similarly, when validators are choosing which miners to to ping, you know, is there any kind of decision that they have to make there or is it all just kind of random? Yeah, it's a very good question. So validators, you know, um, directly speaking, validators don't really need a specific amount of tau to get a response from miners. You can actually start off with two tau if you needed to. But miners have the option to blacklist validators if they so wish, which is actually one of the things that we ran into this year is some of the smaller validators were getting blacklisted and sort of eventually deregistered from the network because they're not getting any responses. And what we found out was interesting is that a lot of the miners will try to optimize their compute by only responding to the big validators. And big here meaning that they're uh, swinging a lot of stake. And so what that really means is that this miner is going to lose out on some of their reward. But because they're only responding to giant validators that have a lot of stake, they're still getting like 80% of the reward that they're looking for in the first place. And so they're saving compute, but by sacrificing a little bit of reward. That is part of how the system works. Um, that is sort of how the setup is. Um, and uh, the one thing that I want to add is that because validators can actually operate across subnetworks as a result, smaller validators can actually join the smaller subnetworks that just started to kind of sort of accumulate town, kind of help that subnetwork grow, and then sort of work their way up to the bigger ones if they needed to. Gotcha. I mean, it, it sounds like that was an emergent property almost. Mm -hmm. But yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of. It's kind of a good one, uh, it seems, uh, in that the you know the validator uh, set is pretty competitive. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's very interesting because it it is as you said it's an emergent property. It was not something we expected to see right off the bat. It was something that we said you know might happen later down, but it actually did. You know, it just blew up right at the bottom. So, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I, re I remember reading at the time that the the foundation was considering certain fixes for this, you know, one of them being maybe lending some of the smaller validators uh, a stake, you know, so they could be a little more muscular and be uh, considered a little more by the miners. Um, has, has a sort of decision eventually been made that like, this is just going to be the way it's run? Um, do you Do you see like an aggregator type? you know, uh, staking service, which, which can maybe bring together all the small uh, validators to allow them to compete in the future, perhaps? Uh, or is this just sort of the way that it's going to keep going for now, you think? To be honest with you, we are open source. I definitely see people going to, they will eventually try to do this. And if they do, all power to them, really. Um, you know, they eventually, I'm certain that eventually down the line, we'll say something more akin to pools. And people yeah. are basically just going to put together small, small amounts of talent and then try to do that. And sort of, it's funny because in a way you can actually already do this with delegation, right? Delegation is effectively a validator pool in a sense, because you're giving out your tower, you're minusing a fee and that's what you're doing, but sort of a more ad hoc pool in a sense of people small, that want to run a validator, that don't want to delegate or anything like that. I can totally see people trying something like this, especially because they're open source. It's very easy to see. Um, sorry, I just wanted to add one addend one correction. Um, I had accidentally said that Vortex, which is subnet 18, is translation. It's actually not. It's mog subnet. I confused it with, uh, I think it was the other subnet that was actually translation. 
Mox Sub Network is the Corsell app. I'm sure if you guys got the not sure if you guys got a chance yeah. to play with that, but yeah. yeah. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, cool. So, what are uh, kind of the future plans for for BitTensor? I've seen some talk of uh, you know building out, I guess like the smart contract like execution layer. Is is that is that true? And can you can you talk to that a little bit? Uh, there's a lot of people working on that sort of thing. Um, actually, I believe some folks from Foundry had also mentioned they wanted to build something like this. Um, to be honest, there is like we are discussing that sort of layer right now, but we don't have it on the actual uh, I want to say pipeline quite yet. Probably going to happen sometime in Q2, Q3 next year. Um, not only because that's an inevitability that's going to happen eventually, but we haven't um, quite built that yet. Um, in terms of future plans. There's two big ones we're trying to do next year. And if we kind of get that done by end of 2024, I think that we've officially set up potential to be a big player in the system. Um, first would be complete decentralization. And that means that we need to set up our governance. We need to set up ways for people to participate in the system. And we need to enable all subnet owners to actually be able to make big decisions on the network, things like chain upgrades and stuff like that. Right now, that's being done by the foundation, which you know, it really helped us out a lot in the um, in the initial stages uh, up until this point, actually even including this point, um, because we need to always make a lot of changes to the blockchain very quickly, right? Especially like, you know, I'm sure you've both seen since you first started looking into BitTensor, so many changes have happened because people find different ways around it, or we find better ways to do the incentive mechanism or et cetera, et cetera. If we needed to fork every time, or if we needed to um, sort of do it in sort of a, a different layer, it would have been a complete mess. So being able to do this very quickly is actually very important, but we're sort of starting to get to the stage where things are stable and we want to sort of give that control to the, com to the community um, as opposed to us. So what we want by end of 2024 is sort of the Open Tensor Foundation to really just be another player in the system. We don't own anything anymore. If somebody comes and shuts our doors down um, next year, it makes no difference. The system still keeps running. Nothing goes down. The second bit is really um, what we are trying to push for is the AI side, which we already kind of discussed earlier, is we want to bring in these talented Web2 AI developers into the system and have them contribute and help us build, um, you know, more interesting subnets or solve harder problems or sort of tackle the system from a different perspective to kind of grow it in a sense that makes it more mainstream with AI folks as well, as opposed to just the crypto side or just even the layman side. Got it. Um, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that that uh, you know the the degree of centralization that you guys have right now is like very useful, you know, for iterating and and building upon the project. Um, but it's it's good to hear that you guys have aspirations to um, really kind of push control outside of the foundation, uh, which I think is going to be very very necessary if long term uh, we all want BitTensor to be uh this almost public good in, in a way yeah exactly exactly we're sort of looking at it as uh the internet back in 1995 right there's a lot of uh regulation happening from corporations to try to regulate the internet back in 95 i think famously microsoft tried to own a monopoly of internet explorer similarly it's happening with open ai um we are trying to sort of get away from that sort of build it in a sense that as you said it's effectively a public good yep one of the ways that I describe BitTensor is that it's just a battlefield, right? For all these different miners to come to the network. And mm -hmm. the the way the output is is uh uh developed, 
is less important than the output itself, right? That's the whole idea of like the objective function. The objective function is put in place and um, you know, give me give me your best results. And at some at some points, those there will be closed source models that are you know at the top of the pecking order. But then there will be times when those closed source models, you know, start, fall down in the in the rankings um, relative to some other models. So it's there's always this this battle going on, and and just because you know ChatGPT might be one of the one of the miners in a subnetwork or maybe the leading miner, it co it comes back to this Hydra, you know, idea where at any point in time you know, ChatGPT could be cut off and a new miner might rise to, to the occasion. Exactly right. You can also look at it as a proven ground in a lot of ways, right? If you can create a model locally that's actually able to beat all these ChatGPT endpoints, then really you've created something that is able to compete with that endpoint in the first place, right? And if you can compete, then you've, again, as we were discussing before, you're kind of um, benchmarked using AI as a model that's actually able to beat um, something as big as ChatGPT in the first place. So it's very interesting um, to see how that's going to play out, especially as more and more people join the network with their own models instead of just ChatGPT miners in the first place. Yep, makes sense. Um, well, this has been great a lot. You know, thanks so much for taking the time. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that that you think people should know, or anything interesting that you you, you might want to bring up? Um, I think you covered everything. Awesome. And and where can where can people uh, reach out to you, or what's the best way to communicate with you? Either directly on Discord. Everyone knows me as Shipship there. Um, you can reach out to me on my uh, BitTensor email, ala at bittensor.com. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's probably a we'll respond to you quite quick there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, this was great. Really appreciate it. Uh, and we're very excited for the future of BitTensor. Awesome. Thanks, Johnny. Yeah. Guys, really appreciate it. This content is provided for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as financial, legal or tax advice. Prior to making any investment decision, you should consult with professional financial, legal and tax advisors to determine the appropriateness of the risks associated with such an investment. No assurance can be given that the objectives of a particular investment will be achieved or that an investor will receive a return of all or part of his or her investment. All investments involve the risk of loss, including the loss of principal. In no event shall Plaintext Capital Management LLC, Plaintext, or any of its affiliates be responsible or liable for the correctness of any material discussed herein or for any damage or lost opportunities resulting from the reliance upon such material. References in this podcast to any specific securities or digital assets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute an investment recommendation or offer to provide investment advisory services. Furthermore, this content is not directed at nor intended for use by any investors or prospective investors. Plaintext and or its clients may maintain positions discussed on this podcast. Certain information discussed or presented in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources. While taken from sources believed to be reliable, Plaintext has not independently verified such information and makes no representations about the enduring accuracy of the information or its appropriateness for a given situation. Any projections, estimates, forecasts, targets, prospects and or opinions expressed during this podcast are subject to change without notice and may differ or be contrary to opinions expressed by others.